0: Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times best-selling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey guys, Kevin Cruz here. Welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show where we help you to stand out and to get ahead at work. Now, as you know, we like to switch things up here, keep it interesting, and to continue that tradition... Today on the podcast, instead of me interviewing an expert guest, we're going to have the guest deep dive into their topic. You see, you'll be hearing audio from a LeadX webinar. Now, of course, there are dozens of great webinars on leadership, management, communication, productivity, and more all archived in the LeadX app. Just visit leadx.org for more information about our webinar archive. So, Enough on the setup, enough background information. Here is Vanya Mathis to introduce our guest and to hand it over to them. Enjoy.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for stopping by today. We have a very exciting guest and webinar for you. You're about to learn how to identify the mindsets that inhibit creativity, learn about the benchmarking curse, which is the tendency to adopt uh, copycat strategies when studying rivals, and how to shed the naysayer mindset. Our guest host is the director of the of the Center for Program Innovation at Bryant University, and he served for six years on the faculty at Harvard Business School. He's the author of the new book, Unlocking Creativity. Please welcome Michael Roberto. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Let me tell you a story. In the 1980s, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, two doctors, began to argue that bacterial infections, rather than stress, caused ulcers. They began to present at various medical conferences It didn't work out well. They said it was as if they were telling people the world is flat. Their ideas were soundly rejected. Frustrated by the medical community's reaction to their work, they took drastic action. One of them extracted the bacteria that they thought was causing an ulcer in a patient. They took it out of that patient's stomach and they ingested it themselves. They became ill. They documented the symptoms as uh, the illness began to progress as they gave themselves an ulcer. Then they took the proper antibiotic treatment that they believed would treat this infection and cure the ulcer, and it worked. Still, they faced skeptics, but some years later in 2005, doctors Marshall and Warren, they won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this amazing discovery. This story, amazingly, is rather familiar. Bold innovators, creative individuals who found solutions to perplexing problems or brought really creative new ideas to market, and business, and other sectors, they faced immense resistance to their new ideas. Shunned by the experts often, beholden to the conventional wisdom. You know, there's a famous saying that, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, in the experts, there are few. The amazing resistance, new ideas, the fact that many of us cling to the status quo when we become experts in our domain. You know, many leaders today talk about creativity in their own organizations, the dire need for it. Their companies face a growth crisis. They desperately need to nudge that top line. They don't know how. Where can they find that organic growth? But do they really support those with quirky original ideas? Or do they marginalize them? Do they make it difficult for those people to thrive? You know, I argue in Unlocking Creativity that it's not about uh, finding more creative people. In fact, There are plenty of talented people with original ideas already in many organizations today, but they face a number of obstacles and barriers. And one of the key things they face is a series of mindsets, belief systems within organizations that inhibit creativity. The job of the leader is to clear the path, to move these mindsets out of the way so that people can flourish in their creativity and bring original ideas forward. So let's talk about three of those mindsets in the little time that we have together today. Let's start with something I call the benchmarking mindset, or in fact, you might call it the curse. Let's go back to the year 2000. A man named Mark Burnett, he had an idea for a really quirky, different kind of television show. And he shopped it around Hollywood. He was a, a British paratrooper who had moved to California with lots of ideas for new kinds of businesses he might launch. Here he was going around Hollywood, not a veteran of Hollywood, not an experienced television producer. He'd done a little bit of work, but not much. And he was rejected time and again. Finally, CBS agreed to air his show, but they wanted to air it in the summer, a time when basically at that point only reruns were being aired. But he accepted. It was his only taker. And by the end of that summer, 51 million people had watched the season finale of a show called Survivor. The reality TV genre had blossomed. And of course, what happened next? Over 300 imitators emerged. Incredible amounts of copycats, if you will. Awful copycats in many cases. Yes, there were a few great successes in the reality TV genre over the years, but so many shows that came and went that flopped in their first season. Why do we see so much copycat behavior, not just in Hollywood, but in industry after industry? We see people looking at those who've been successful and imitating them. They try to benchmark them. They study them, they identify their best practices and try to implement those best practices. See, benchmarking should lead to learning, learning from the best, taking those ideas, adapting them, and making them your own. But for many companies, it's not about learning and adapting. It's about observing and copying, and frankly, copying badly, as happened in reality TV. Why does this happen? Why doesn't benchmarking work in many cases? Or why does it lead us astray? Well, I argue that there's a fundamental psychological phenomenon that's behind our tendency to engage in copycat behavior, even when we don't intend to. It's called fixation. And over the years, psychologists have been studying this closely. What does it mean to become fixated? And when so we look at something and our mind gets trapped into a certain way of thinking, and we begin to be trapped in a single way of thinking about a problem, or a single type of solution to a problem, we can't think more broadly. It limits our ability to engage in what we call divergent thinking. When we're really generating Bold and creative ideas, we're hopping around to different ways of framing the problem, different types of solutions, different categories of solutions, if you will. Fixations when we quickly converge on one way of looking at the problem. Well, people have studied this, and amazingly, they've looked at it with regard to engineers and designers and new products. They've done some experiments. For instance, in one case, they asked people to design something like a bike rack for an automobile. And some engineers were given a blank sheet of paper. Others were told to study previous designs for bike racks. And then they measured the creativity of the designs these engineers developed. And perhaps unsurprisingly, now that I've talked about fixation, you can guess what happened. The people who looked at the prior designs, they tended to mimic what they saw. Elements of those old designs crept into their engineering drawings. The people with the blank slate, they were far more creative, as measured by outside expert judges. But what happens if we were studying something and we explicitly knew that that wasn't best practice, that there were flaws in a prior design? Well, some studies looked at this as well. They said, okay, here's a a, a challenge. Design a new spill-proof disposable coffee cup. But you've got to uh, look here. This is a previous design. It's not so great. Here's some flaws. You might want to avoid these kind of flaws. Others, again, blank slate slate of paper. What happens? Even when they're shown the design and told it's a flawed design, even when they're told to avoid specific flaws in that design, people engage in fixation. Still, elements of the old drawings crept into the new drawings by these engineers. Fixation took place. So how do we overcome fixation? How do we study and learn from others, but find our own path and unleash creativity? Well, there are a number of ideas that I could discuss on this but let me just share two. The first is I think it's so important that we learn not just from our direct competitors but that we go outside of our industry, outside of our technical domain, outside of our field of study to learn. We should read broadly, think broadly, study and travel broadly. And I think it's important to do that because when we go out of our own context, we're forced to learn and adapt. It's almost impossible to copy because the context is so different. So Suppose, for example, that you're thinking about uh, running a a business where you sell shoes. You're a shoe store. You could study other shoe stores and benchmark them, but you might end up looking a lot like them. What if you went to the Ritz-Carlton and studied how they serve their customers? The Ritz-Carlton, what does that have to do with selling shoes? Not much, you say. But what does the Ritz-Carlton offer to us? It offers us an incredible example of top-notch customer service of exemplary service to customers. Maybe we could learn something about that and build it into our business model for selling shoes. We almost can't copy because we've gone so far outside of our own domain. So sometimes learning from outside is really important. The other thing we can do is to look at others but explicitly ask ourselves the question, what if we did the opposite? What if we did it a totally different way? What if we rejected some elements of the conventional wisdom that all of our competitors have adopted. What would that look like? Might that be successful? Imagine for a moment a grocery store that where nothing was ever on sale, where there were few branded items sold in the store, where there was no acceptance of coupons and no loyalty card, no self-checkout, and virtually no social media and no television advertising. Would you shop at such a grocery store? Well, it turns out millions of Americans do. The company's called Trader Joe's, and its sales per square foot exceed the industry average by a wide margin. In fact, they're at the top of the industry. They didn't fail to study other grocery stores. I'm sure they look at them every day, but they've explicitly rejected some of the key things that everyone else does and built a unique model, built a creative model. So, learning from outside your industry and looking within your industry, but rejecting some of the central tenets of conventional wisdom can be key in avoiding that benchmarking mindset and the fixation that comes with it. Let's talk about two other uh, key mindsets that get in the way of creativity. The second one I'd like to talk about is, is the focus mindset. You know, we have a myth sometimes that we hold dear, that creative breakthroughs come when, you know, we go off alone, in isolation, away from the busyness of our daily life and work, and we focus intensely on a problem. And this image of the rock band you know, that holds itself up in the studio, perhaps on a mountaintop or, or off in a faraway land, and somehow getting away from it all, they emerge with a creative breakthrough. In corporations, we sort of adopted this focused mindset when we set up war rooms or innovation hubs where we put teams off in isolation and expect them by focusing intensely on a problem to have some breakthrough with an original idea with a disruptive innovation. But for many of us, creativity doesn't thrive simply by intense focus. Remember that Mark Twain, for instance, in writing Huckleberry Finn, took several years away from the novel. He wrote intensely, initially. And then he put the manuscript aside. He said the tank had run dry and he needed some time away from it. Years later, he came back to it and he finished the great American novel. Now, it's not just about taking a break or going for a walk. Those things can enhance our creativity at times. But there are some other deliberate strategies we can employ to unfocus ourselves when we're stuck. Because sometimes by focusing intensely, by going off alone, we do get stuck. Creative breakthroughs come from oscillating or toggling between periods of intense focus and periods of gaining some distance from a problem. And distance is more than just taking a walk or taking a break. Psychologists describe different forms of psychological distance that we can achieve, and they argue that when we achieve this distance, we think more abstractly about a problem and therefore more creatively. Let's talk about three forms of psychological distance. The first is social distance. Amazingly, when asked to think about a really tough problem, if we think of ourselves facing the problem, we're far less creative than if we think of others facing the same problem. If we think of ourselves as someone else, we imagine ourselves as someone else, we're more creative too. Achieving some distance there, socially, interpersonally, can be effective. How does this translate to the workplace? How can we do that? Well, we can find ourselves at times role-playing the competition, or perhaps engaging in an exercise where we take on a different role within the organization. At Sun Life in Canada, the major financial services firm I did some research once on a strategic planning offsite that they engaged in. And during that offsite, they asked various members of the management team to take on the role of a different functional area as they engaged in discussions and brainstorming about new models for their group insurance business. And they found that people were far more creative when the finance executive was forced to think like the chief marketing officer and when the chief human resource officer was asked to think about operations and its perspective on a problem. So role plays like that can be effective. In the military, they engage in something we call red teaming, where the blue team acts as the allies and plots strategy in a simulated battle. The red team role plays the enemy. And having people do that sparks creative solutions and creative strategies for the military at times. So achieving social distance is real. We can make it happen and unleash our creativity. We could also achieve temporal distance. We can time travel, if you will. When asked in experiments to think of themselves several years from now, people get more creative. They think more abstractly and more innovatively. How can we do that in real life in the workplace? Well, at Amazon, they do something interesting. You know, they ask people if they have an idea for an interesting new product or service. They ask them to imagine when that product or service would be released and to write the press release that would be issued to the public. In other words, what will you say to customers a year from now? when you bring them this new product or service? A little bit of time travel, if you will. And it often gets people to think creatively. Hmm, who is our target market? How would we sell this product? What's the value proposition? What exactly are the key benefits that we are proposing here? And how would we make it appealing? Does it solve a customer pain point? All these questions that emerge, and we think more creatively, if we put ourselves out in the future, when the product actually hits the market. So temporal distance, and lastly, Physical and cultural distance can be important. You know, there's an interesting study of fashion designers. They found that objective evaluators of fashion designs found that more creative designs were developed by those fashion experts who had spent time in other cultures and other countries living there and working there. They created more fashionable clothing. They created more hit products. Hmm. What did they learn by traveling? by spending time in other cultures. Turns out, we notice things that we take for granted in everyday life when we immerse ourselves in a different culture, in a different country, different place. We learn about different ways of looking at the very same types of problems that we look at every day in a certain manner. But others, perhaps, in a different culture, a different country, they look in a different manner, and that may spark our creativity. So the kinds of assignments we give our people can be important. Making sure that we have people outside the office, into the field and perhaps into the field far from the corporate office so they can experience how others look at problems can be important. Think for a moment back to my favorite rock band, the greatest rock band of all time, the Beatles. They made their trip to visit the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in India back in the late 1960s. They learned about meditation and Eastern concepts of spirituality. They lived and ate very differently and even dressed differently than they were accustomed to. It turned out to be a moment of incredible creative breakthrough too, though. They didn't go there intending to write songs. In fact, George Harrison intentionally didn't want to be writing songs when they were there. But Paul McCartney brought along his guitar and John Lennon his notepad, and, and the four of them, they did write when they were there. And many of the songs on the great breakthrough album, the White Album, emerged during their trip to India. So getting some distance, social, temporal, physical, and cultural can help us stimulate our creativity. We don't want to just focus intensely. We have to shift between intense focus and gaining some distance, especially as Mark Twain once said, when the tank runs dry. And finally, let's talk about a third mindset that gets in the way of creativity. I call it the naysayer mindset. You know, Tom Kelly of IDEO, uh, the top-notch product design firm based out in California, Tom and his brother David worked there for many years developing new products for tons of companies around the world. Tom wrote a book in which he He offered a a stern admonishment for the devil's advocates in organizations around the world. He said the devil's advocate is the single biggest innovation killer in corporations today. Is it? Is Tom Kelly right? Because my research suggests that having people play the devil's advocate can stimulate creativity and actually enhance the quality of decisions we make. It's not just my research, but decades of research and management shows that there can be great benefits to having people play the devil's advocate. It helps if someone authentically is the devil's advocate and really believes it. But in the absence of constructive debate, sometimes it helps to have leaders assign people to play the role of devil's advocate. But Tom Kelly has a point. In many of the corporations that I work with and where I've done research and consulted, I've seen the devil's advocate run amok. I've seen contrarians become really dysfunctional. I've seen the naysayer mindset tear down good ideas and nip great ideas in the bud before they ever get off the ground. So how do we overcome the naysayer mindset? How do we utilize the benefits of the devil's advocate without ending up with contrarians who are constantly saying no? A situation where everyone's constantly saying no, and no one's ever saying yes. I think it's about who plays the devil's advocate, when they play that role, and how they play that role. It's not a yes or no question. It's a who, when, and how. Getting it right, doing it right really matters. So let's think about the right type of contrarian, the constructive devil's advocate. Let's start with who. And there's a couple of things that are really important here. The same person always playing the contrarian, always being the devil's advocate, no matter how effective they are, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they become a broken record. And people tune them out. It just doesn't work. They marginalize them. They dismiss them. They go, here goes Mike again, you know, chicken little, the sky is always falling. So you've got to rotate the role. And, you know, Kevin Lofton runs a large Catholic health system out in Denver, Colorado. And Kevin says he purposely rotates the role of devil's advocate in his team to get new ideas, fresh perspectives, and to make sure there's no problem with the broken record. Research also suggests that it's helpful to have two devil's advocates, that two is better than one. When you have one, it's easy to marginalize or dismiss their contrarian viewpoints. But it turns out when you have two people on the other side, they each give themselves a little social support they're more confident in their ability to come forward with a really different quirky idea. And they're more likely to ask others and to call upon others to think differently. And others indeed will think differently in more occasions when challenged by two rather than one contrarian. When matters too. You know, if you unleash the devil's advocate, as soon as people start to propose new, different alternatives to a problem, well, what happens? If someone is poking holes in my idea, what is everyone else on the table thinking? They're thinking well maybe my idea is a little too crazy a little too infeasible a little too off the beaten path and maybe i won't propose it and so we quash great ideas they never surface so when you play the devil's advocate in the early stages of problem solving we don't want it we want to hold off we want to defer judgment we want to simply generate options generate alternatives and then later we can critique them you know in too many organizations they embark on what I call the yeah, but syndrome. You now, when new ideas emerge, everyone thinks, yeah, but. Yeah, but the boss will never go for it. Yeah, but we don't have the budget to do that. Yeah, but we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. What we want to practice is what improv comedians do, which is they talk yes and. They accept others' ideas and build upon them so as to end up with a creative sketch. They don't reject others' ideas outright. Later, there's plenty of time for constructive debate, but in those early stages, it's a time to generate options. And finally, how you play the devil's advocate. You don't deliver a lecture. You don't just chide people and tell them what's wrong with their proposal. You practice the Socratic method. You ask questions. You seek to generate new options with the group. You help uncover assumptions. You don't tell people they're wrong, but you ask them, could they think differently about the problem and how might they do so? And what other options might there be to solve this problem? So who plays the role, when they play the role, and how? If you do it well, you overcome the naysayer mindset, and you have an organization where people embrace a can-do attitude where it's not, well, why won't that work? But instead, the question becomes, how might that work? How could we make it work? A positive attitude that can, in fact, help creativity flourish. So in some, leaders need to shift these mindsets, and others that I discuss in my book, Unlocking Creativity. They don't need to go out and find more creative people. They've got plenty of talented people in their organizations today in most circumstances. What they have to do is clear the path, remove the obstacles so these people can flourish. It's not a people problem. It's a situation problem. It's an environment problem. And it's the leader's job to change the situation, to reshape the environment, to clear these mindsets, to shift them so that creativity can flourish. Thank you for listening and being with me today. I I hope you'll take a look at my new book, Unlocking Creativity, published by Wiley. Release date is January 7th, 2019. For the new year, a new look at how we can get original ideas to flourish in many organizations, available on Amazon and in bookstores such as Barnes & Noble around the country. Unlocking Creativity. Thanks for being with me. I'm Mike Roberto, professor at Bryant University and director of our Center for Program Innovation. Thank you very much.
0: Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take a minute, leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings are invaluable for attracting new listeners. And I like to convert those listeners into leaders because you know I'm on a mission to spark 100 million leaders in the next 10 years. And if you want to become the boss everyone fights to work for and nobody wants to leave, check out the LeadX platform with Coach Amanda at LeadX.org. And if you have 10 or more managers who could use some binge-worthy training, send me an email at info at LeadX.org, lead xo And we'll talk about getting you set up with a totally free pilot for those managers. See if they like it. If they don't, that's fine. We go away, part as friends. But if they love it, you've just found yourself a new resource for them. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How are you going to lead today?